0: Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the coronavirus crisis update, pandemic planet, and AIDS existential moment. Please join me, Jay Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Katherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for US leadership. This is The Common Health.
1: Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Katherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. It's my pleasure to welcome Heidi Larson, Professor of Anthropology and Risk at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. Heidi is also Chair of the Global Listening Project, an initiative focused on building societal cohesion as a key element of preparedness for future crises. We had a chance to work together back in 2020-2021 on a project focused on vaccine confidence, misinformation, and national security. And of course, in that project, which was looking at receptivity to COVID vaccines in the United States, we saw in a small way many of the issues around political polarization and societal fragmentation that have become very prominent now. Looking forward to this conversation to hear about your current work, Heidi. Welcome to the Common Health.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks.
1: So the Global Listening Project, which you launched earlier this year, I think, or... We launched
2: the research earlier this year, but... The seeds of it got started during the beginning of COVID. During
1: COVID, right. I mean, so this has really been something developing for a while. But you're describing it as a new initiative dedicated to driving real understanding and positive action to better prepare society for times of crisis. And you've said that you see building societal cohesion as a key element of preparedness for future crises and emergencies. So we spoke in the spring of this year, I think back in March, And since then, the project has really carried out thousands of surveys and focused discussions with people around the world about their experience of the pandemic. So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about why you started the Global Listening Project, what indicators you're using to kind of understand social cohesion, what that means in different places, and how things have evolved since the launch of the research. Great. Thanks so much. Having founded the Vaccine Confidence
2: Project in 2010 and having built and launched a Vaccine Confidence Index, when COVID hit, we had already 13 years of building a global research network. I mean, a whole network of researchers around the world and built a collaboration with our data collection partners, ORB, and also had learned about building an index. And so I really felt like a lot of what we had learned in the vaccine space pointed us to a lot of underlying factors that were relevant to a number of different health interventions well beyond vaccines. Trust was one of the most fundamental ones, but there were a number of other ones. So the other thing that was going on at the time before COVID was that there was a bit of an epidemic of pandemic preparedness initiatives on the heels of H1N1 and then Ebola. And I was a reviewer for a number of reports and and asked to comment on a number of things. And one thing that I saw was missing was preparing people. There was a lot on surveillance, on systems, on governments, on modes of cooperation, on supply chain, all important. But there wasn't really an explicit area That was focused on societal preparedness, preparing people. So at the beginning of COVID in the first year, we didn't even have vaccines. So we were, with some support from Janssen, we started doing what is the world thinking and feeling surveying. And then I was fortunate enough to get a MacArthur award under a new bucket of funding that the board decided to set aside on addressing inequities and injustice in the context of COVID. And that I have to thank the MacArthur Foundation was really the seed that turned my eyes to the idea that we need a global listening project. And the MacArthur work started in Nigeria and India. And that was, we picked two major metropolitan areas, Abuja and Delhi and started to listen. And then a few others came on board, GSK, Moderna, Gates Foundation, and said, we really like what this is about. We'd like to support you to expand it. And at that point, we set up an independent, the equivalent of a US 501c3, but in Belgium. And basically, the project now has expanded to, instead of those two cities, to six. The approach was... We did extensive focus group sessions and interviews in Sao Paulo, New York, Abuja, Paris, Bangkok, and Delhi, trying to understand what were people's experiences, who did they trust, what would have made it better, a number of different issues around equities, around empathy, around support systems. And from those different regional intensive listening, open-ended, we didn't wanna assume what we were gonna hear, we used that to see what were the cross-cutting themes across the multiple settings, and what were the ones that were more locally, political, or culturally specific. So the ones that were more global, we used as a basis to design a survey that we then ran in 70 countries globally. And the reason it took a bit of time between when this got kicked off in 2021 and now was because one design, that process took a little while. But then, of course, you have to go through all the ethical approvals. 70 countries have 75 plus languages, probably more. So there was a lot of preparedness to roll that out. I don't think we could have done it in the time that we did without having that previous infrastructure we had built in the previous 13 years. And this past summer, in July and August, we ran the 70-country surveys. And it's been fascinating to see the range of differences. And the plan right now is to roll it out, but I've really been on these last two months sharing this, some of this preliminary data in round tables in some of the local settings. A lot of the Africa work I shared in Senegal with uh, the Gates Grand Challenges, which is, has had people from across Africa and some internationally in Tokyo around some interesting findings in Japan to get some feedback, Africa CDC. I was just in New York, that was one of our focus cities, and today, as you know, we'll be sharing it with a mix of partners with CSIS to get early feedback. That's pretty atypical to be starting to share things without the full analysis, but we really wanted to start to make this a genuinely listening project. And the other thing about the index and the whole approach is we didn't sit around a table in Washington or Geneva or London or wherever to design these questions. Everything about this project has been from day one defined what people on the ground around the world have told us. And we want to keep that spirit up and keep ears wide open and eyes wide open because we often assume what people are thinking and experiencing. And I think the people part of the COVID response was our Achilles heel.
1: So it sounds like you've really been able to build on more than a decade of work doing public surveys and you know, really already developing a group of trained survey experts or people who can carry out the surveys, whether by phone or in face-to-face conversation and then adding to that these focus groups that have really enabled you to kind of hear from the ground up like what people were saying and and so then really driving the themes themes of the research. One of the topics that I've heard you talk about before and I think you've mentioned is part of the survey is really looking at how people perceived their own mental health during the course of the pandemic. And I wanted to ask about that in the context of thinking about these 70-plus countries and different languages, and just ask you to say a little bit about how you make sure people are being asked about or talking about the same thing, or do you? I mean, when people talk about their mental health, they may have different interpretations of what that means. And so how do you either make sure you're getting at the same thing through the surveys or then, at least from what people say, interpret that in a way that makes it comparative? It's a good question, (laughs) and you picked a good example, mental
2: health. This is a very strong partnership, which we've had for almost a decade, more than a decade, with Orb International, who is a network of local research groups around the world. So that, to be fair, this is a very strong collaboration with them, and they had that network before we came along. But what we've done is work closely with them to building a slightly different nature of that relationship. And they have a long history of rigor in doing data collection and through their local networks. And we also brought our own experience and insights. I think where we came along is having a different kind of local knowledge through other types of research. And these surveys are piloted. They're translated locally. They are, as you said, some of them, particularly in African settings, which are have lower internet or phone saturation, are very much face-to-face. I think the consistency, there's a lot of testing of that. But something like mental health is not just, as you know, it's not just about literal translation, it's about conceptualization and experience. And you did pick a good one because both in Senegal and Japan, they had the out of the seventy countries were two countries where people were reporting the lowest amount of mental health issues out of the seventy countries. Iraq had the highest and US was on the higher end but not at the top. But in the round table and one of the reasons I have been going around the world and sitting with local counterparts is to get some feedback on what do they think about these figures and in Senegal they said we definitely had more mental health issues then are reported. Again, all of these surveys are what people's perceptions are, what people's experiences were. And one part of the analysis is we're going to look at how the perception compares to the reality from a data point of view, from a public health data point of view. Because one of the things we want to bring attention to is that what people are experiencing, perceiving, In some countries, there's a huge gap with what's actually going on. And we need to bring those sides closer together. In the case of Senegal, they said, you know, also there's a lot of stigma around mental health. I mean, in the U.S., a lot of people, there's a culture of talking about <laughs> issues, and but it didn't happen overnight. I mean, it's taken years to encourage people to acknowledge that something's going on. So there was a stigma issue, and then also they said, you know, they might not think of some of what they're going through as, quote, mental health. So that was another issue, and we wanted to talk more about that. And in Japan, I did a roundtable with, it was a mix of people from the Ministry of Public Health and Institute of Infectious Diseases, people from tech industry, from pharma, from different sectors, both public and private. And there were two younger women there who said we're brought up to pull up our bootstraps, keep a smile on our face and soldier on and not to talk about these things. So there's that culture of keeping it in. But they said, also, we don't really have a language for these things. And then I heard from some of the people working in health, both in research and in the ministry, that actually there was quite a bit of mental health issues going on. There were. And there was a spike in female suicides during COVID. So those are the kinds of things that we want to bring out to say, look, in these situations, if we want to get more dialogue, somehow we need to bring the two sides together. And I don't see much of that out there. You've got a lot of surveys, I mean globally, a lot of surveys on what people are thinking, but it doesn't always get put in a context of, okay, what actually was going on? Another thing that was reported, the perception of how Japan was handling the pandemic was on the lower end of the spectrum, when in fact, Japan, particularly among the G7, did the best in terms of if you only count it by COVID cases and mortality. But that's not what the public's perception was in terms of government handling. So these kinds of things are what we really look forward to looking at in the analysis. I'm also trying to harvest today during our round table questions that people have, because we wanna think about that as we wade through this massive amount of data.
1: It sounds like there's a real limitation to the official statistics that have been gathered by public ministries, maybe, as you said, about number of visits to public mental health centers or number of suicides or other indicators that might provide some official documentation of where there were challenges or not, and then the public perception of the experience of COVID itself. And so part of what you're trying to do is... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a
2: limit in the data because the data is there. But what we're learning is what the public experience and perception is. We in public health go out there with a kind of evangelism around interventions about take this, it's good for you, and hoping that, expecting sometimes and hoping that people will line up. But one of my points throughout my vaccine work, but increasingly in this other work is we're not paying enough attention to what people are feeling and thinking. And if there was one big theme that came up across all these initial six cities, as well as the broader work, is that people really felt like they had no voice during COVID and they felt like it was very top down. And people even told us, We knew in an emergency that we needed guidance, we wanted guidance, but so many times the guidance that was coming down was not relevant to our situation. It wasn't feasible to do some of the things that we were being told we should do to survive.
1: (laughs) So that raises an interesting point that I know we talked about some during the project that we did on misinformation and security back in 2020, 2021, but a lot of people found themselves turning to the internet for guidance and for information and to their phones in particular. Many of us spent hours kind of scrolling through the news and just trying to find out what was happening and what we should do. But one of the questions in the survey, or a set of questions really, focuses on use of technology and apps in particular and how much people use things like fitness apps or meditation apps and how much they're willing to share their personal data with those apps. And I was curious just to hear a little bit about what you're looking for in asking about those kinds of issues and where that fits into the landscape of kind of trust and in institutions and thinking about this mix of health, trust, and information.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And we do have a whole section that is a deeper dive on trust in technology and use of technology. And in 11 of the 70 countries, we did a longer survey, which particularly investigates how people used apps or what they trusted. And also, we we're probing more, to on people's willingness to share data. Because there is, for instance, with mRNA, we we were also asking about perceptions about mRNA, which was a source of a lot of rumors, because it was brand new, because mRNA sparks questions about DNA, and people were anxious about that connection. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you know, I, I think a lot of people preferred the mRNA vaccine because it didn't have some of the, there was different reports in the news about who was having side effects. And so it was a confusing mix of information. But the reason we also wanted to understand more about mRNA was we're at the beginning of a wide spectrum of new vaccines and therapeutics that are going to be using the mRNA platform. So we think it's really important to understand where do we need to get more clarity or understanding. And also the whole field of personalized medicine is dependent on people's willingness to share genetic information, other information, and that's a whole new emerging field. So we thought this was also an opportunity to start to understand that a bit more. And we did do a lot of probing about these apps. It was interesting in this smart scale, which I frankly didn't know a whole lot about, was one of the more frequently used apps, particularly in Asia. And there was some personal fitness things that people were happy to share, but then when it started to get more and more on health things, there was less willingness to share. And it also depended if it was for your own personal health, or if it was to be shared with public sector or private sector, there was the least willingness to share any kind of data if it was for a profit-driven company. Mm.
1: Thinking about, I mean, you've been here in the United States for a few days. You were in New York. Now you're here in Washington. The Pew Research Center just came out with a new survey showing that people's trust in science and technology is even lower now than it was during, I guess, the middle of the pandemic. And even smaller numbers of people think that public health at this point has a positive role to play in society. But some of your research, I think, also showed that in some of the African contexts, where maybe it was more of the face-to-face interviews, people felt relatively optimistic about the public health sector, or at least about the health system. And so... I wanted just to ask you to reflect on what might underpin some of these differences, just in terms of cynicism around public health in the US context at least, and a more optimistic outlook in some of the other countries. What? Well, I think the questions were
2: were more around based on your experience during COVID, does it give you a sense that in future the health system is going to get better? And is it ready for another crisis? I think one of the issues in Africa is the system in many places is already a bit weak, stronger in some settings clearly than others. But this was a test that the public had never known before. And what was interesting is that somehow if there was a silver lining of the failure of the global community to deliver particularly when it came to vaccines. What it did do is, in a positive way, there was a a strong Africa, all Africa, Africans for Africa energy for vaccine production, for self-sufficiency in general. I mean, clearly there's going to be a need for resources from other countries for a while, but there was something that a lot of people felt like their government was were trying to take care of them now africa didn't see some of the extreme outbreaks at least that we did in europe us and like in delhi in terms of an acute highly visible now there was a lot more covid than was reported because of limited testing and that It's still unfolding. I mean, there's been some studies in some morgues, for instance, in some countries where they did see that actually a lot of the deaths were COVID, but still from a public perception, they felt like not everywhere. I mean, and we look across Africa, which countries felt like their governments gave them more guidance than others. But I think some of that perception is related to the starting point and the level of expectation
1: Well, it sounds like expectation and the fact that there was a regional solidarity. Yes, a,
2: a really very strong. And that was impressive,
1: for sure. So I want to ask you to look ahead to the next phase of work. You've started the research, you've carried out all these surveys and focus groups and really intensively examined a select set of cities in particular. You've got the government data, you've got the survey data you've got the information from these listening sessions how will you be putting all of this together and how will you be will you be making recommendations to international organizations to cities to governments where do you take the information from here
2: well the next year from now we've already started doing some round tables with this We're taking a different strategy with this, and that was partly with the advice of our, we have a really great international advisory board, number of people who are in other preparedness initiatives that I wanted to, because I see this as a resource to other crisis preparedness initiatives, not to start yet another (laughs) independent one, but to be a resource to that. And we had the advice, don't wait to share this till you have the shiny report. One, people don't read fat reports these days, but two, you never know when the next big one's going to hit. And we are crisis agnostic. This isn't just about pandemics. A lot of the things we are particularly probing, which is willingness to cooperate, capacity to organize, and ability to cope. Those are our three big pillars. That will be very relevant, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's another pandemic or conflict but situations where people need to come together. And so we are, in effect, first thing is we're deriving what we're calling a societal preparedness index, which has those three key pillars. That will launch in a smaller report in January. And then over the course of next year, it will be like the chapters will unfold. We'll have a focus month on gender, we'll have a focus month on mental health, we'll be looking at trust and technology, we'll be looking at different aspects. All of the data, we're totally overhauling the website to be able to visualize all of our data. We'll be on call and doing both policy roundtables as well as media roundtables in different settings. So it'll be a pretty busy year in term. I mean, next year is really focused on engagement with this data.
1: Well, Heidi Larson, thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak with me today. I have enjoyed listening and hearing quite a bit about this new project and hope that we can continue the conversation as additional components of the analysis come together and the work goes to the next level. Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.